there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Talked to a number of young people this evening, very briefly, but several of them told me that they were headed for missions. And I was thinking about years ago when I was visiting a certain theological seminary not very far from where we lived. Uh, it shall be nameless. It was definitely not Gordon Conwell's theological seminary, but another one. And they were talking about the search for a new, um, what was the word in there? Something like a new idea about missions or something. And I really couldn't imagine what they might be going to speak about. But in the question and answer period, a woman who was sitting just about one seat away from me, she stood up and she said, well, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a missionary in my life, and I'm sure I've never been near anyone, any one of them. But she said, you know, they've always puzzled me because missionaries are people that go all over the world to tell everybody that everything they're doing is wrong. And she said, I just, I, it's just, I don't, I don't like that kind of missionary work. And I thought, well, that's an interesting definition of what missions do. They go all over the world and take everybody, tell everybody that what they're doing is wrong. Uh, what we have, of course, is a marvelous, wonderful piece of news to give to them who are willing to listen. And just by way of a definition of missionary work, you know, the word missionary doesn't actually occur in the Bible, but it comes from words meaning one who is sent. And a modern missionary by the name of Paul Borthwick puts it this way, missions means to preach, to teach, to build a church, to do medical work, to do baptizing, catechizing, social improvement, philanthropy. All of these things are under the heading of missions. And we are meant to be witnesses to take the gospel of Christ to those who have not heard, and primarily, I would say, to live before those who have not heard. What we say is not nearly so important as what we do and what they see in us. I wrote down a little list here of suggestions as to what expectations you might have if you're thinking about being a missionary. And I see that there are a number of people here who probably are beyond the age when you might be considering being a missionary. But there are all kinds of things that God may ask you to do. But here's a few simple suggestions as I was pondering over my own missionary years. Number one, I strongly recommend that you live in a national home rather than go to uh, language school. Now, I, as far as I can understand, practically everybody is required nowadays to go to language school before they go to the field. Uh, there was no such thing as a language school in my day, and I had the wonderful privilege of living with an Ecuadorian family who didn't speak a word of English. 
I didn't speak a word of Spanish. And so, of course, you have to sink or swim in a case like that. And I would strongly recommend that if you do put yourself in such a vulnerable and very often difficult position, by all means, ask for correction. As you learn a foreign language, don't be afraid to ask the speakers of that language, am I saying it right? And I have known missionaries who were too sure of themselves to ask for correction. Seems as though it should be very obvious. Number two, don't worry about your health. Wash your hands and eat what's put before you, which may be tough in some cases. Number three, learn the language all day, every day. Don't do anything else until you've learned the language. We knew missionaries in Ecuador who had been there for 12, 15, some of them 20 years, and they absolutely murdered the Spanish language, not to mention the jungle languages. Number four, don't forget why you came. Commitment to Christ. Number five, never dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. You're going to have all kinds of surprises, many of them far from pleasant, and you're going to be strongly tempted to turn around and take the next plane home. Don't do it. Don't dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. Number six, remember that the servant is not greater than his Lord. Americans are famous for lording it over everybody else in the world. You know, we've got it all by the tail, and we know exactly how everybody ought to do everything. And you just have to shut your mouth and start listening and learning from people who are a whole lot smarter than you are when it comes to living in the jungle or learning languages. Number six, the servant is not greater than his Lord. It is enough for the servant that he be as his master. And that is from Matthew 10, 25, a favorite watchword for me as a missionary. It is enough for the servant that he be as his master. Number seven, you are disposable. You have expectations and dreams and projects and goals. But Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So let's remember that we are disposable. Number eight, often overlooked and of extreme importance is time alone with God. It's very easy for a missionary to get so caught up with learning the language and having to cope with all sorts of new things to just completely forget how terribly important it is that he arrange time on a regular basis every day to be alone with God. That would be your lifeline. I have a friend who does a lot of traveling around the world and when she, she happens to be a musician, so wherever she goes, around the world, she said, I always go first to find out if there are any missionaries in the area. And she said, the question that I always ask the missionaries when, I've, when I'm given the privilege of speaking with them and talking with them is, are you having quiet time with God? And she said, Elizabeth, you'd just be amazed 
at the missionaries who tell me that, no, they don't. They, they just feel that it's all, all their missionary work is service to God, of course, and so they've neglected that quiet time, which very often leads to disaster. Someone has said, a missionary can be the busiest person in the world or the laziest. And I know that's true because I lived in a very remote area of the jungle where there wasn't any other missionary. Nobody was breathing down my neck and telling, telling me what to do. And I could have wasted all my time. And there were certainly temptations along those lines. You can be the busiest or the laziest. Number nine, remember that all work is spiritual. And this applies to all of us, whether we're missionaries or not. Uh, I want the whole of my life to be an oblation, an offering to God. I don't think God is impressed with my standing in front of an audience and, and speaking, nor is he impressed with my standing at the kitchen sink and chopping onions. Both are my job. I happen to have a husband who likes homemade soup, and so I do a lot of chopping of vegetables and making of, of soup. And when it's time for me to make soup, then that's what I'm supposed to be doing for the glory of God. It is spiritual work. It is not less spiritual than speaking or writing or praying or anything else. All of these things are meant to be offered to Jesus Christ. And we can look at the example of Jesus himself. He traveled the dusty roads of Galilee, just like any other itinerant rabbi. And he was tired, and he was hungry, and he had to be fed and taken care of. But he said, I do always those things that please the Father. What a wonderful testimony. Wouldn't it be something we should all be aiming at? To be able to say, I do always those things that please the Father. And number 10, have you ever heard anybody say, well, I work my fingers to the bone for this church, and what kind of thanks do I get? And the next question would be, what kind of thanks do you expect? Is this for your sake, for your glory, or is this for Jesus' sake? And it's not very likely that you will get a whole lot of thanks from those to whom you go to minister, at least not until they begin to understand what it is that you're there for. You're nothing but an intruder. You're a freak. You don't wear what they wear. You don't look the way they look. You don't speak the way they speak. And everything about you is just absurd and intrusive. So get used to it and don't expect any other kind of thanks. And Jesus said some very hard things before he sent out his disciples. He said, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. Don't be surprised. You're to be shrewd as snakes, but innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be flogged, arrested. Can you imagine how Jesus poured out these instructions to them? Probably very simply, because he himself knew that it was no, quote, big deal, can we put it that way. Uh, this, this is just the way it is. So get it clear in your mind that this is the way it's supposed to be. Um, they will be you, you may be flogged, you may be rest, arrested. Don't worry about what to say. 
it will be given to you at that moment. In Matthew 10, 24, it says it is enough for the servant to be as his master. It is enough for the servant to be like his master. And a student is not above his professor. So let's remember to take the lowest place and ask the Lord to teach us what it is that he wants us to learn as missionaries. And I have been greatly blessed throughout my life in knowing personally, I think I can say without exaggeration, hundreds of missionaries. I grew up in a missionary home. My parents were missionaries. My mother's guest book has 42 countries represented in it, and we six children sat around the table and listened to missionary stories all our lives. And five out of the six of us became missionaries. And for that, we are very grateful. But a missionary's expectations are not by any means necessarily fulfilled. In Isaiah 43, verse 10, we read, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And I suppose I read that passage dozens of times before it suddenly struck me that Jesus is not saying, you are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen so that they may know and believe me. It is so that you may know and believe me. And that is, that is by far the prior necessity. I have to know and believe God if I have never known and believed God as thoroughly and as deeply as I have by the time I become a missionary, then certainly I need to know and believe him and understand, as God says, and understand that I am he. And that is the foundational work of what a missionary is to do. He has got to know and believe God first before he can imagine or suppose that he has anything else to offer to others. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26, if anyone would come after me, he must give up his right to himself and take up the cross and follow me. Three conditions of discipleship. Do you want to be a disciple? You don't have to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus was one of many rabbis that walked the roads of Galilee in those days. And there were lots of people that followed other rabbis. Jesus is not coercing us and saying, you must do this. But he simply says, if you want to be my disciple, this, these are the conditions. Number one is the most difficult condition of all, and surely that's why Jesus put it right up first. Give up your right to yourself. Abandon yourself. Relinquish yourself. Give yourself over totally, unreservedly, and forever to Jesus Christ. If you're willing to do that, then you're in a position to take up the cross, which is the second condition of discipleship. Give up your right to yourself and take up the cross. Number three is follow. 
Now, what is that cross that you and I are going to be asked to accept? Do you envision anything dramatic or heroic that God might give you to do? Well, I confess that I did. All my life, I was just hoping that the Lord would give me the privilege of being a missionary, and I just thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to be one of those heroic, dynamic missionaries, the, the likes of which we knew so well from our dinner tables? Wonderful, godly people, not that they were in any way claiming to be dramatic or heroic, but that's what we saw in their behavior in our home. And so I wanted to be that, that kind of a missionary, but I think... What we all need to get through our heads is, if we want to be his disciple, then we must give up our right to ourselves, relinquish ourselves, take up the cross, which John H. Newman defines as no great action done once for all, but the continual daily practice of small duties which are distasteful to us. Now, if any of us can stop and think, what have I thought was the taking up of the cross? I wonder if you would have couched it in that language. But the more I study that simple definition, the more absolutely clear it is to me. The taking up of the cross is no great action done once for all, but the continual daily practice of small duties which are distasteful to us. And as a missionary, there will certainly be some duties which are distasteful. Lars is asking me if anyone is having trouble hearing. Is that what you... Okay. Nobody seems to be having trouble hearing at the moment. <coughs> Well, after I had learned Spanish, which of course is the national language of Ecuador, I was invited by two British women to come to the Western Jungle to work with them in a tribe called Colorados. And Colorado is simply the Spanish word for red, as any of you who speak Spanish know. And the reason that these Indians were called Colorados was they literally painted themselves brilliant red from head to toe. The men had to spend about 30 minutes every morning doing their hairdos because they smeared their hair with Vaseline, which they bought from the drugstore, and then they colored it with a brilliant dye, and then they brought the front part of their hair out almost like a baseball cap. So it took a long time to get this all smoothed out and looking exactly like, really more like a helmet, but it had a peak like a baseball cap. And then they painted their entire bodies red, and then they painted horizontal stripes with polka dots in between from head to toe. So it was a very apt name that they were called Colorados. That, of course, was not their name for themselves because they had their own name, but Colorado is a Spanish word. And I was told that nobody had ever learned this language except uh, one person. Well, we didn't even know that there was one person. We were told that there was nobody outside of that tribe who had ever spoken the Colorado language. Of course, the Colorados themselves spoke it, and they spoke a very, very little broken Spanish in order to be able to trade 
with the white man. But I was given to understand that nobody else had ever learned both Spanish and Colorado. So, of course, I prayed that God would send me someone who would be able to help me with this Colorado language. And to my utter amazement, God sent me a man who was far better qualified than I could ever have imagined. His name was Macario. He was not an Indian. He was a white man who had grown up on an hacienda where there were Indian children. And so he had spoken both Spanish and Colorado from his childhood. On top of this, the man was out of a job. He was willing to work for me at my price, which was about 25 cents an hour. And to my utter amazement, this man turned out to be a Christian. And he was absolutely thrilled at the idea that God was going to enable him, given the privilege of participating in what he recognized as the beginning of um, the translation of the Colorado language someday into the Bible. And so it was with a great deal of thanksgiving to God for giving me this man to help me that he and I began working together every morning. He would come about 8 o'clock in the morning, and just for one hour, he would sit there and speak Colorado. Of course, he could translate for me what I would be writing in phonetic script. He didn't know how to write Colorado because nobody else had ever written it either. But I had had linguistic training, so of course I was taking down what he said in the Colorado language in uh, the kind of script that we were taught. And we were working very happily together for about six or eight weeks. And I was in my bedroom one morning reading my Bible, and I was reading the passage in First Peter, uh, first, first Peter 3 or 4, I think it is. It says, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you, as though something strange were happening to you. It happens to give you a share in Christ's sufferings. And right at that point, I heard gunshots. This was not at all unusual because the white men that lived in that little clearing hunted with guns, and the Indians also had long since learned the value of the white man's guns, so they also did their, most of their hunting with guns. But these particular ones uh, were, th these particular gunshots were followed by people screaming and yelling and horses galloping and general pandemonium. Of course, I got up off my knees and raced outside to see what had happened and discovered that Macario, my informant, had just been murdered. Remember, he was the only man in the whole world that spoke those two languages. And you can imagine the three-letter word that I asked of God as I looked down at that corpse with a hole in the head. Why, Lord? Here I am, a brand-new missionary. Hadn't the Lord called me from childhood practically? Did he send me to South America? Did he make me come to Ecuador? Did he send me to the right tribe? Have I made all these mistakes? Was I not supposed to come here? Lord, why would you do this? And what sort of answers do we expect when we begin asking God all those whys? Seldom does he explain. He simply says, trust me. And so I had to continue with the work that I had been doing with Macario so successfully, now I was going to have to do it with much greater difficulty. And during that year, there was one very wonderful thing that did happen. 
and that was that Jim Elliott, the man that I had fallen in love with years before when we were both college students, he had felt that perhaps God was calling him to be a jungle missionary, single for the rest of his life. And so it was almost, it was five years before he believed that God had given him the green light to be married because he had been working also in the western, in the eastern jungle, way over on the other side of the Andes. I was working in the western jungle and I was doing exactly the same kind of work that he was doing, although he was working with the Quechua tribe and I was working with the Colorado tribe. And when he got God's green light, he asked me to marry him. And of course I wanted to shriek, yes, but I just said yes. But then he said, um, I have to append a very stringent condition to my proposal. I will not marry you until you learn Quechua. So that was the third language that I was going to have to learn. And I thought it was a very high price to pay, but not too high a price to get a man like Jim Elliott. And so I had to move from the Colorado over to the eastern jungle to learn the Quechua language. And one of my jobs when I was working on that particular mission station was to man the jungle radio network. And I could hear my fiance's voice occasionally on that jungle network. So that was always nice to hear. And one day when he came on, he sounded a bit agitated. And he announced that the entire station on which he had been working for that whole year, he had built three buildings and had repaired two old buildings. All five of them, the entire station, had just been completely demolished by a flood. And once again, that third question that we ask, that question that we ask God, why? That three-letter word, why? Why would God allow me to work that time with Makadio to reduce that language to writing, which I had succeeded in doing during that year, and then completely wipe out this whole area that Jim had been working on. And it wasn't very long after that that I received a letter from one of my British colleagues who was still working with the Colorados in the Western Jungle. Her letter told me that all of the language work that I had done in that year had been stolen. And this was in the days before Xeroxes and before copying machines. And everything had been in one suitcase, all the three by fives, all the journals, all the scraps of paper, everything was gone. And so once again, my question to God was why? And of course, Jesus had given us plenty of warnings that things were not going to work the way we wanted them to. And so I began to learn that every one of us has to have some kind of an encounter with the cross. Amy Carmichael wrote a poem, which I'd like to read to you. I don't know what her particular situation was, but this exactly fit my dilemma at that time. But these strange ashes, Lord, this nothingness, this baffling sense of loss, it's as though she or someone is talking to God, and then the Lord answers, 
Son, was the anguish of my stripping less upon the torturous cross? Was I not brought into the dust of death, a worm and no man I? Yea, turned to ashes by the vehement breath of fire on Calvary. O son beloved, this is thy heart's desire. This and no other thing follows the fall of the consuming fire on the burnt offering. Go on and taste the joy set high afar. No joy like that to thee. See how it lights the way like some great star. Come now and follow me. You remember that when an Israelite brought a sacrifice to the, to the tabernacle, the priest would take that animal, let's say it was a lamb, he would slit the throat of the lamb, he would lay the lamb on the sacrifice, and it would then be burnt to ashes. I think this, this is the metaphor that she's referring to here. These strange ashes, Lord, this nothingness. What was left of the Israelites' offering? Nothing but ashes. And I pondered and pondered that. You know, why would God allow all that year's work to go down the drain? All Jim's work to go down the drain. And then I gradually began, began to understand that every one of us has to have a personal encounter with the cross. A place at which we find that we are utterly helpless and we have only him to cling to. Well, I heard an African pastor tell a lovely little story that I, which I love to tell because it fits so perfectly my own experience in that very first year as a missionary. He tells a story and he makes it perfectly clear that it was a legend. It is not a story that's in the Bible. But this, this little legend, which is apparently an African one, is that Jesus one day called his disciples to go with him up a mountain and to pick up a stone. Each man was to pick up a stone for him to carry. And so each one carried his stone up to the top of the mountain and Jesus took the stones and turned them into bread because by this time his disciples had become hungry and so he made bread for them out of their stones. Well, Peter had only taken a big stone and Peter had only taken a little stone, and John had taken a big stone. So, of course, Peter didn't have nearly as much bread as John did, but John shared some of his bread with Peter. But a few days later, Jesus again asked his disciples to carry a stone for him. And once again, of course, each picked up a stone. This time, Peter picked up a big one. And Jesus led them, this time, not up a mountain, but to the river and told them each to cast the stone into the river, which they did, and then stood there waiting for the miracle. Nothing happened. And Jesus said to them, for whom did you carry that stone? And I'm sure that there are many in this audience tonight who have had tremendous sorrows and disappointments. You've poured everything you've had into something that's just come to nothing. These strange ashes. Why? Well, for whom did you carry the stone? For whom are we living? 
for whom do we go overseas to take the gospel? Is it in order that we may come back as heroes or heroines and get wonderful treatment by the churches that have sent us out? Are we prepared to receive anything that God permits to happen in our lives? Andrew Murray wrote this, God brought me here. It is by his will that I am in this straight place. In that fact, I will rest. He will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. He will make the trial a blessing, teaching me the lessons he intends for me to learn and working in me the grace that he means to bestow. In his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when? He knows. So let me say I am here by God's appointment. I am here in his keeping. I am here under his training. And I am here for his time. For whom are you carrying the stone tonight? Well, as probably many of you know, the story of the five American missionaries who were killed in 1956 in an attempt to reach a tribe that were considered Stone Age people. And this was not just Christian world news, this was world news, as you older people undoubtedly remember. And after Jim died, of course, I was left alone on a station. He and I had just been the only two missionaries there, and I had a baby who was 10 months old. And I prayed what seemed to be a rather ridiculous prayer at the time. I just said, Lord, if there's ever anything you want me to do about the Alcas, here I am, do anything you want with me never supposing for a moment that God was going to take me up on that. But a year and a half later, in a very remarkable series of circumstances, which I haven't got time to describe, the Lord gave me the privilege of meeting two Alka women. They had come out from their tribe wearing the usual Alka costume, which was a piece of string. I don't mean a G-string, I mean a piece of string around their hips. They also, if they wanted to be very dressed up, they wore a piece of string around their arm, occasionally. <laughs> but these two women, of course, came speaking nothing but Alka. Nobody had any idea why they had come out. They appeared at a Quechua home. I was alerted by Quechua Indians. We've got some Alkas at our house. Do you want to come to our house and see them? And so it was through that that, in a most amazing way, those two women, not having a clue as to who I was or anything about us, um, for some reason trusted me. And they came and lived with me for almost a year, during which time, of course, I was desperately trying to learn their language, which was now language number four for me. And I was having a very hard time of it because, of course, they had no idea that there were any other languages in the world except their own. So I was the one who was a real freak in their minds. But we did manage to begin to communicate very gradually over the months. And finally, I was pretty, con pretty convinced that the women were saying to me, when that palm tree gets ripe, we're going home, and we want you to come with us. So I said, will your people kill me as they killed my husband? And they just put their arms around me. They said, of course not. You're our mother. We love you. We'll tell our brothers and our fathers that you're good. Nobody's going to kill you. And so in that amazing providence of God, my little daughter and I, and by that time, uh, the sister of the pilot 
who had started Operation Alka. Her name was Rachel Saint. She had come back from the States where she had been during the time that I was there with these two Alka women. And so the three of us white women went in with these Alka women and Valerie and I, my daughter and I, were given the privilege of living there for two whole years before I felt that God was telling me to go back to work with the Kichwas again. But it was during those two years of living with these Stone Age people in a little house with no walls, no floors, no furniture. I had a hammock strung between the two walls, my two poles, rather. I had a fire on the floor, which was kept going 24 hours a day, as everyone else's was. My daughter slept on a slab of bamboo underneath my hammock. And, of course, I was spending virtually all day, every day, trying to learn the Alka language. Now, if I were to say to you, Butu, Bitu, how much of that do you think you'd get down? Or if I were to say, what would that mean in the Alka language? Well, I found out that it means no. So I saw a little boy over here. You think you can remember that, that the word in Alka is, means no? I think you could. He's shaking his head. Yes is, and there were various idiosyncrasies, but all of this was a great test, of course, of my stick my trust that God really had sent me there for a reason and it was not for nothing. But I think, thank God for the tremendous privilege that I had. And I want to read from Philippians 2, verses 5 to 7. The Apostle Paul is talking about attitude. And one thing that a missionary needs to do regularly is to check his attitudes. You can be sure there were some things I didn't like to eat that I had to eat. It says in verse 5 of Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And there were many reasons why I had to take upon myself the nature of a servant, because these Indians thought I was the stupidest person they'd ever seen in their lives. I didn't know how to catch fish with my hands, but my little three-year-old daughter learned to catch fish with her hands in one week. I didn't know how to weave hammocks. So the women said, well, we're going to show you how to weave the hammock. And so they showed me, and they showed me exactly what to do, and I made a mess of it. They asked me if I knew how to uh, clean the jungle, cut with machetes. Well, I had tried using machetes before, and I wasn't very good at that either. And they just threw up their hands and laughed. They thought, this stupid foreigner, you know, what do you do? And their question was, what do you do? And I had this little book with me then, and they smelled it. And they said, it's an animal, isn't it? And then they opened it up, and they smelled it again, and they said, it's wood, isn't it? And, of course, they were perfectly right in both cases. But all I ever did was walk around with this little book, trying to write down what they said. So everything about it was a case of attitude checks constantly, because I got fed up with them. I just wanted to say, I don't want to hear anything more about this stupid language. And yet God was merciful and enabled me to continue with what, what he had given me to do. And I think about the 
dear young people who write me letters and they want to know something about missionary life. What can I tell them about it? Well, I tell them that you're going to have to have a personal encounter with the cross. To be a follower of one who is crucified means sooner or later that you're going to have to be crucified in one way or another. And the cross always entails loss. And the great Christian symbol, which is the cross, means sacrifice. And nobody who calls himself a Christian can evade this stark fact. It is not by any means something that's easy to recognize within a given instance of personal loss. But it is an opportunity afforded to us to participate in the sufferings of Christ. And that staggers me. All of us are going to be given suffering. All of us are given suffering in all kinds of ways. And my definition of suffering is having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. And all of us have to suffer in various ways in that way. But it says in Romans 8:17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. That staggers me. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, if we are willing to receive whatever kind of suffering God meets out to us, in order that we may share in his glory. Now, of course, if you're anything like me, you would just say to the Lord, but my little troubles and trials and tribulations and sufferings, what in the world does that have to do with your sufferings, Lord? And yet, the Lord graciously allows us to participate in his sufferings. These are such profound truths that we have to spend a lifetime learning them. But I thank God for the privilege that he gave me of having to see those things. And here's one of my favorite verses, Romans 8, 35 to 38. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 35. I can think of no more marvelous work that God could give us to do than that of a missionary. And if God doesn't call you to go overseas, we are meant to be sent ones wherever we are. And may God give us grace to receive that assignment as a holy calling for his glory. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>